we opened basically the Studio 54 of Russia. They had never had anything like that. It was actually designed by the people who designed Studio 54. Amazing. It was super exciting, but also not without its dangers. Club was bombed. Uh, what? It was bombed on a Sunday morning as sort of a warning from another rival business operator. Oh I remember having to call my sister. I called her like five minutes later, said, you can't come and tell me if this shows up on CNN. This is What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis. We're talking business and hospitality. Let's go. David Rabin is one of New York City's most successful hospitality entrepreneurs. His portfolio of establishments include his partnerships in American Bar, Temple Bar, Veranda, Sona, Jimmy, The Skylark, The Lambs Club, and now 23 Grand, to name a few. He has a long history of creating spaces that define the pulse of New York City nightlife, including in the past Lotus, the Double Seven, Union, and the Rex, amongst others. David is also on the executive board of the Times Square Alliance and the board of directors of the New York City Hospitality Alliance and was a co-founder and president of the Meatpacking District Initiative. What's Next podcast, welcome the incomparable David Rabin to the show. Thank you for welcoming me, Mindy. Thanks. Yeah. Nice to see you. It's I'm so excited to have you here and that you can find the time to sit with us in your very, very busy schedule. <laughs> it's on the block of one of our places, so it's not that bad. It's oh, about good for us. About a hundred yard walk. We're so. up the street from the Skylark. So exciting. One of my favorite places. Thank you. So David, tell us about your professional journey. How did you get into nightlife restaurants and hospitality? Complete accident, really. I was a real estate lawyer, kind of hating my existence. And, uh, but we had one entertainment client who you'll know the name, Al B. Shore. And I was going out a lot to events with Al, Al because the partner was in his late fifties with three kids and he was like, you go. And right. so <laughs> all of a sudden I'm a 26 year old lawyer going around to all, and Al was very big at the moment and going to all these events. I and was I, definitely a fan. I started running into one of my best friends from college who we sort of like kind of lost each other after college. He was on Wall Street hating his life, and um, but he was dating a very famous model at the time. And so he had a lot of access and he's a great looking, very bright guy. So we started going to all these places, uh, all these events and stuff, and they would bring me along and or vice versa. I'd invite them to some music thing. And one night we maybe had a little too much tequila and we were in Nell's at sort of the height of Nell's in the late 80s. And uh maybe 88, 89. And uh, we were looking around the room and we realized we knew almost everyone in the room and we're like, fuck it, we should just open it. Like, right. Excuse my French. <laughs> and, uh, and we thought we were joking with each other. Like we both said, yeah, let's do it. And a couple of days later, we called each other and we're like, were you serious? Because I was kind of serious. And he's like, yeah, I was kind of serious too. So, because we were like 28. Right. Unmarried, no responsibilities really. So like two weeks later, we gave notice and we each took like three months off to just chill. I went to Arizona to read books, play sports, and he kept calling me about once every two weeks to make sure I was coming home. Right. And, and I was like, yeah, I can't live here for the rest of my life, but it's <laughs> nice for three months. And we came back and we opened Rex and it was, we didn't know what we were doing. It was a small townhouse on 6th Avenue and 16th that had, uh, it was a restaurant on the ground floor that became like a live music club with like these kind of raucous, fun blues bands. And then the second level, we're like, Stretch Armstrong started playing and all these DJs that, you know, um, he was like 19, was a dance floor that used to actually kind of dip over the kitchen and pardon the name drop, but my good friend, Brad, I, I'm not particularly friendly with this guy, I wish, but I know Denzel this much through my <laughs> friend, Brad. And 
whenever he remembers that it was Rex, he's like, oh, the place where the floor was shaken. I'm like, <laughs> but it was the exact. And nobody fell through. Thank God. <laughs> but it was the exact moment of the, the true supermodel, the Linda, Cindy, you know, Christy, Naomi moment. And they were all really friendly with my partner, Will. So we just went from having these incredibly boring jobs to having a nightclub filled with like at that moment, the most famous women in the world and word, word got out. Not that we knew what the hell we were doing on business right. side, but we had a great crowd. And it sort of all went from there. That was the oh, starting man. point. Yeah. That's incredible. That's an incredible story. You have such an impressive portfolio of restaurants and venues with no signs of slowing down. <laughs> I love them all. Thank What's you. What's the formula for keeping things fresh? What's the key to maintaining a successful, buzzworthy business in this industry? They're all pretty different, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. I'd love to find one that is, rep, you know, that can we can replicate. We have never really, we, people did, when we had Lotus, people did want to have, we went to Tokyo at one point, someone was going to build one in Tokyo. They wanted us to do something in, in Vegas, but they all, for various reasons, whether it was, some of it was nine, like we had a deal to do Lotus in the Venetian and 9-11 happened. And that just completely, you know, ended anything in Vegas for a year. What keeps it, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, someone once asked me, how, how come the places you open do, do well? And I, I answered two things. I said, one, I have really good partners in all of them who have their, bring their own crowds and initiative, initiative and, and brilliance to the process. And the other is inertia, you know, it's just sort of people are like, well, why do you know so much and so many people in the fashion business? I'm like, we've been catering to that audience for 25 years. And so you just kind of meet the next generation. And a lot of it really is that it's, it's, you know, the CFDA did a really nice profile on me a couple of years ago about just people being fashion adjacent, you know, yes. as you can tell, I'm not exactly uh haute couture, but I, I, you know, I, I know. I think it, you look pretty uh, cool. your Jordans you, and your you. Y3 hat. But I know, <laughs> I know what's going on enough to let, you know, I'm friendly with people. And in New York, it's really, that's the driver. I mean, we all know that in LA it's driven by the entertainment industry. And certainly there's a big component of that here as well, but you know, fashion sort of sets the agenda in New York. And we've been lucky that, and a lot of it really was dumb luck. I mean, it was just that, you know, Will was friends with these folks and the Freedom video came out and, the, you right. know, that whole thing, that era, and they were just like all of our friends. So we were very lucky. Much closer friends with Will, but, you know, I just got to know that whole audience through that through that one venue and then kind of led to all the others. Somebody's got to operate. I think I think it's so great that, you know, you say dumb luck, but it's really opportunity meeting process. And, mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. And another thing is that to scale your portfolio of mm -hmm. businesses through just having different businesses is an interesting strategy, so mm -hmm. to speak, versus individuals who have chosen to take a brand and, and expand that in other places. Mm -hmm. And those places aren't around and they don't last. But this is a very novel and interesting approach to building and scaling mm -hmm. in, in, in the hospitality business, for sure. A lot of it has been, I mean, it's nice of you to call it opportunity and taking, but really some of it has been done, like Jimmy, which has been going for 13 years now, the rooftop in Soho, our former GM of Lotus took a job with that hospitality group, a hotel group. And he said, hey, Rabes, can you get on the subway and come down to Soho? I'm like, what for? He goes, just trust me, come down and look. And I got down there and he shows me a concrete rooftop that was still under construction with a pool and insane views of the whole city. I'm like, yeah. and he goes, we're going to build it. You just have to run it. We're going to build it. It's a management. I'm like, where's the candy camera? Like, right. I'm like, like you're kidding me, right? Like, uh, and so 
it was relationships. You know, he trusted that we could, they had at the time that James knew that they could handle the, the it was called the James at the time. They knew they could handle the, the rooms and the restaurant was David Burke, but they needed a little jewel box on the top. And we were coming right off Lotus in the double seven and they trusted us that we could create something special up there. And you know, these things grow through life cycles, but what I like about Jimmy and what I liked about Union Bar, which we had from 95 to like 2005, what I liked about those venues was over time, they evolved into these, I almost call them like the best example I used to be, I don't know, I have to think maybe of another one, but I used to say Armani, you know, Privé, and then Armani, Emporio Armani, and then Armani AX. Like, uh -huh. you know, they always stayed at, pre at Emporio Armani level. You know, right. like you'd have your year up here with like, you know, the famous people and all that stuff, but they, they always went to sort of a very nice, handsome crowd that had the money to afford the place that would come respectfully, come dressed well, and it's sort of self-sustaining. Right. I don't see a lot of FOMO in our places, which I, I like, you know, I think people are happy to be in them and they're not feeling like, oh my God, I'm missing out on whatever, like staring right. at their phone all night. People come to Jimmy and they're just having a good time. They exactly. may take a couple of pictures of themselves, but they're just having a good time. They're not chasing something all the time, which I think is hard in this day and age, you know? Yeah, that's what I find fascinating as someone who has, you know, a background in also producing events and looking for these unique jewels to have, you know, bring a unique crowd around to create buzz for brand, the companies in your portfolio have this consistency. I was mm. at Jimmy day one, you know, and I can still pick up and go there on a Friday or whenever. Still feels good. And it still feels good. Yeah. And it's just reliable mm -hmm. and a good time. Say, I, you know, I can run down the list of everything. I think you have to kind of figure out what your lane's going to be. And, and that's really hard to do in New York City. But you got to kind of figure out what your lane's going to be and stay in it. You know, like, when I was approached about the Skylark, which is on this block, actually, on 39th Street, it was just for advice. So the guy who owns the building decided that he could get, he would have a more effective strategy of marketing his 500,000 square feet of, of office space if he had an amenity to offer on the roof. So he started building this rooftop and he asked if he could meet me. He had another operator, but he just heard about Jimmy through a mutual friend. He said, would you just look at it for me? And I came and looked at it and, you know, obviously, it, again, it was all concrete and glass. It wasn't designed wow. yet. And he's like, well, what do you think? I said, I think you're going to kill it. It's insane. insane. I mean, there's the Empire State Building. There's a Chrysler. You could see everything. And he said, well, if you don't mind just reading my business plan over the weekend, just to give me your thoughts. And I read it over the weekend and I was just dreading the phone call. And he called me and said, well, what do you think? And I said, honestly, Bobby, I hate to say this because we just met and I don't want to, you know, maybe I'm wrong. And he says, well, what do you mean? And he says, I think it's going to fail. And he said, well, you could hear all the hair go out of him. And he said, why do you think it's going to fail? I said, well, you're planning a Models and Bottles nightclub on 39th and 7th. No one cares. Like no one is coming here at 1230 at night right. for their big night out. And if they do come, they're coming with promoters. And the moment their Grey Goose runs out, they're going down to One Oak or Avenue or whatever was the place of the moment. And he's, you know, you could hear him just like, he's like, well, what would you do? I said, I really didn't think about it. But I mean, off the top of my head, I would do something that made, felt like a, a non-membership version of Solo House. So you felt a little bit aspirational going there, but you could get in and, and I wouldn't open on weekends. And again, he was like, what? And I'm like, I would just do weddings because this neighborhood is not good on weekends. It's empty. Right. It's completely Business. commercial area. So we hung up and he said, well, thank you for being so candid and, you know, really appreciate your advice. And hung up and a week later he called me and said, I, I want you to run it. And it was insane. Like 
it was a real lesson in like, take the meeting. Like I spent 20 minutes with this guy and- um, Jules, people, Jules, take the meeting. I always take the meeting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it, you know, he, the Skylark is five minute walk from the Lambs Club, which I am, I'm at almost every day. So I'm like, well, look, I'll go talk to him for 20 minutes and whatever. Like it's a favor. It was mostly a, a favor to a friend, our mutual, very close friend. Next thing you know, this has been a 10 year business with no signs of slowing down. You know, we had, obviously we lost 16 or so months with the pandemic, but business is pretty much back. Um, happy hours, not as strong as it used to be because not as many people are in the office, but the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday business is, is very good. And then Friday is more touristy, but again, it was staying in our lane. I'm not trying to attract someone from Tribeca to the Skylark. I'm not trying to attract someone from the Upper East Side. I'm not expecting them to, you know, go 50 blocks to, to, you know, but what I always said to the team was like, let's focus on this five blocks around us, which includes, you know, Proskauer, the New York Times used to include Condé Nast when we first opened, which was very important for us. Used to include Rockefeller because they were across the street. So I, or Rock Nation, I said, so let's just focus. There's a lot here. Uh, All the garment business, you know, it was in a better place at that time. And I I said, look, if anyone hears about us and decides to come up here from the village, fantastic. But there's so many law firms, big banks, fashion companies, uh, and even it, like we see a lot from Paramount because we're a four block walk and we share a lot of guests between, you know, I get the opportunity to tell people at Lambs Club that you should check out the Skylark yeah. and vice versa because a lot of them don't realize this. So, and they're not competing businesses. Lambs is breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, that's kind of it. And here is, you know, 4.30 on cocktails. So there's sort of, there's a synchronicity, there's a like relationship, but they don't hurt, it doesn't hurt each other. That's so phenomenal. I already immediately feel like you need to have a masterclass <laughs> because that strategically is absolutely brilliant. But again, like, as I, you know, I, I, it's, Lambs was doing great, but I had no idea. Like, it was no forethought to like, oh, I, we should do a rooftop five blocks away. It just was, you know, prior successes leading to someone wanting to ask me a question and one thing led to another and we had a business. Well, David, so, you're a bit of a genius. Doug. You know, listen, I advise C-suite executives, founders, entrepreneurs on how to scale and grow their businesses. And what I've heard here is just a tremendous jewel for the hospitality business, especially in a city where there's so much turnover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hate to see it. I love when a new place opens. I kind of instinctually know when it's going to be. You know, I can tell in a couple of weeks whether it's you gonna know work. it's going to be around or not. But it's the fact that you realize that instead of trying to, you know, this is where we are. Let's focus on the radius around mm-hmm. us and make that work. Mm-hmm. And it and it has. And it also speaks to who you are, because while knowing who you were, I was supporting your establishments and hadn't known that you were the owner, you know. And I remember having a birthday party for my best friend at the Skylark and had such a good time. And the your staff was so accommodating that I had my birthday party there the following week. And then I kept having events there because it was easy and chic and fabulous, the experience. And everybody enjoyed themselves and was close to my office in this area. Right. But that's, you know, you just said it. You're only as good as your management team. You know, you cannot, the hardest period, you know, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of hard periods in our career because there's been, you know, natural disasters, not natural disasters, pandemics, Especially in this last 20 years yeah. in New York City. Exactly. But the the hardest period for me, honestly, was probably the six to eight months after the pandemic was sort of, I wouldn't say over, but calmed down. And we had to either open or reopen all these places at once. 
And I was feeling really like a Jewish guilt that I wasn't in all of them all the time. It was kind of impossible. So I spent almost, you know, eight to 10 months literally just racing around New York. And I wasn't getting any quality time kind of anywhere until we found really strong managers at each place who sort of really got the program. And now it feels a lot more manageable. But without strong management or great partners, you're, there's no shot. And how challenging was that? Because it was all, beyond challenging. All I hear from everyone is that like the staffing was just impossible. It was. It depends. Look, where you got staff to come back, like Jimmy, was, they always made a lot of money. And our GM there is, honestly, I could, I don't even have to go there. I do go there because I like it and because this team is amazing and I see friends there. But I mean, she has it unlocked. She's been the GM for six years. Amazing. Thankfully, she came back after COVID. She was debating whether or not she wanted to because it's a hard job, but she gets, you know, she's just amazing. So, and the staff wanted to come back there because they knew it, it's much harder to staff, even though apparently many, many long-term establishments are still having problems staffing. They're still 10 to 20% below what they're trying to be, but they can't find those people. It's always much easier to staff a place that they, the staff knows they're going to make money at than a new venture. Right. Because a new venture, they're like, well, yeah, I know I've heard of that guy or I've heard of these team, but yeah, they yeah. might, what, you know, where, if they're going to go somewhere and make 400 bucks a night and they know it, they're going there, you know, as, as much as they can. And what makes a great GM? Uh, what do you look for? Well, uh, it's a really hard job because in the perfect world, they have both front of house and back of house skills, which is rare. So, you know, it's someone who you know, obviously understand scheduling and to some extent, I mean, they have help, but payroll, ordering supplies, having an understanding of all those issues. And at the same time can be the face of the place. And granted, you usually have one or two extra other managers and maybe someone else is particularly strong socially, but the ideal GM can handle both. And also just, we always call it owner's eyes. It's a, it's a strange thing in the industry that just some managers cannot seem to under the simplest things, right? The, the, the lighting is too bright for the time of night or too too low for the time of night. The music is too loud for the conversation part of the night or it's too soft at the sort of like, you know, late later part of the night. And it's the kind of stuff, I didn't go to hospitality school. It's just common sense. You yeah. walk in, the first things you see, as you can talk to, I think, almost any owner and they'll say that they walk in and they're immediately like, really? Really? The lights? Really? The sound? Like, yeah. And we have one or two places where I don't even have to think, but we have a couple of places where I walk in and I'm like, can't be this loud. Really? I guarantee people are screaming at each other at the tables. I can right. just, I know what I'm going to see, which no one wants to be doing at seven o'clock at night, but maybe at 11 o'clock at night, they have a different mindset. Right. So it's really hard to find. And when you do, you just got to hold on for dear life, kind of treasure them, to treat, treat them really, really well. In one case, back at the double seven, unfortunately, we got forced out by a landlord who had a termination clause, but- one of our best managers from Lotus, we made her a partner in the double seven. We were very early, not to move this on my back, we just like talent. So we were very early to use, to have a lot of female GMs. Four of our seven places right now are run by women. We love to hear that. And, but we, when we opened a bar in Vegas that we had for about seven years called V Bar, we had a female GM and double seven had a, had a female GM who had proved herself at Lotus. She ran the sort of I hate to call it the VIP, but the platform where it was sort of a VIP-ish thing, she ran it perfectly. And so when we found the space for the double seven, we said, look, we should really bring her across the street, but we should give her equity in the business. And she would have done great as we all would have because the business was flying, but the landlord got offered an insane amount of money to sell the building, which he did. 
and he had the right to kick us out. Unfortunately, he pay, had to pay us to kick us out. But by the time we reopened that, the meatpacking district had sort of moved on. Right. You know, we got there so early. You know, we started negotiating in like 98 and opened in 2000. And it was funny because we had the same landlord as Keith McNally for Pastis. Mm. And, and every time we would ask for something, he'd say, well, Keith didn't ask about that. And I'm assuming that he would say in the same shit to Keith. Right. <laughs> Keith, by the way, has the best saying, in keeping with what you've just been asking me about, how do you keep a place going, et cetera. The best thing, and I don't know, I can't, I don't think I can quote it exactly, but I've been told that Keith has said that he always wants to be everyone's third choice, which sounds counterintuitive at first. Cause you're like, what do you mean? You want everyone to be, don't you want to be their first choice? And he says, no. He goes, I want it to be a group of six people who can't decide where to go. And they say, let's go here. And someone says, I, I don't like that. And someone, and you get to, and then you say Balthazar or Pastis and everyone says, oh, oh yes. <laughs> great. And that's a great place to be, right? Where no one, everyone's happy to hear about it, you know, yeah. to go there. And that, you know, that exists on different price points. Like who would say no to go into lore? Right. You could get anything, you know, John's done a great job there. You could get anything love you want pancakes, there. Love the pancakes, You know, <laughs> who would say no at a certain price point to go into the Smith? I mean, I think right. the Smith is brilliant. And, you know, you, you know, it, it's whatever, 40 to 50 bucks a person. It's not a hundred. You know, the food is just right for that price point. It's, service is great. So like, I think that the, you know, the good operators around the city know their, know their lane and stay in it. You know, Keith knows who his crowd is, Jeff at, and look, the Carbone guys know who their audience is at a higher price point. They're brilliant at it. I mean, they've opened, I think, eight places in Miami in the last two years. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. I don't know where they're getting the personnel, but that's the secret I want to, <laughs> I want to crack. Well, keep listening to the podcast and we might have some answers for you. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, as a New Yorker, I'm often asked by folks like, is New York back? What do you think? Who better to ask than the man who has his fingers on the pulse? Uh, like, would, where I think are we New York's now? changed a lot. I can't, I mean, first of all, it's very strange. Seven o'clock is the new nine o'clock. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never used to go to dinner when I was single or even my earlier married days when we would go out before we had kids and stuff. I just thought it was because I was older, but my no. friends are way too happy to like even 630. Yeah, I'm no, like, it's great. I know. I know. I'm like, I'm barely ate lunch, you know, yeah. but I think a lot of it was for, well, first I think people were bored as shit during the pandemic and just right. ate earlier because they're, what were they going to do? They were locked home. Uh, and then when the restaurants first opened, I, I don't know if you recall, but there was a 10 PM curfew on them. So yeah. everyone wanted to eat at 7.30 so that they would be on dessert at 9.30 and could get home at 10 or leave by 10. No one wanted to hear about an 8.30, 9 o'clock reservation because right. it meant to be like- they had to And they were telling you- it's Go, it was, it was serious. Yeah. And, and I think people just got used to that, that feeling better about eating earlier and digesting and all that stuff. And, you know, nightlife came back last. So I think the idea, the sort of, the what used to drive our eating out late when I was a- when I was single and going out or even in the Lotus days was, well, you couldn't go to a club till midnight. So you're not going to eat at seven. Right. What are you doing for three hours? Exactly. Right. So you'd eat at nine thirty, ten, and then go to whatever venue you were going to at midnight. And I mean, I used to tell people, people say, how's Lotus tonight on a Saturday night? I say, I won't know till one thirty. Right. I really would. I couldn't like during the week, you'd know earlier. Well, if you're a New Yorker, that's just, you know, nothing happens at, until 1230. Yeah. You know? yeah. And now, and now it's, what's interesting now is I like for Temple Bar, which knock on wood is doing great. We, nothing good really happens after two o'clock for us. So we don't mind the slightly earlier closing time. We have a three o'clock closing time there on weekends and I'm fine with it. Yeah. You, if you want to go dancing at gospel or you want to go to Lucy's or Little Sister, great. 
Right. Come to us after your dinner, have two or three drinks, either go home because that's your whole night or go to one of the clubs and stay in open till four. But we like that niche of, you know, the, the grown up, you know, I want to bop my head. I want to have a great cocktail, but I don't want to be screaming. I want to hear right, my, my right. friends. That's really where we, you know, as we've gotten older, as I've gotten older, that's really our sort of, you know, a lot of people say to be, you know, when we do have a big party once in a while, they'll say, you got to reopen Lotus. You got to do a Lotus. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, because you're going to come once a month. Right. You know, <laughs> when all the stars align and you have a babysitter and, you know, <laughs> you don't have a wedding the next day or something. And you're going to come out that one. You're like, this is awesome. And then I won't see you for two months. Right. So like, you can't run a business like that. So, yeah. Knowing is half the battle. I feel like New York has changed, though. I mean, I think I call it the Brooklynification, which is a very awkward word. But, you know, when we had Lotus or Double Seven or even back to Rack, you didn't go out in Brooklyn. Even if you lived in Brooklyn, you had to come into Manhattan. But now it's so spread out. And, you know, it doesn't just mean Brooklyn. It could be Jersey City or Hoboken. It could be somewhere cool in Queens. You know, but people have places in their in their neighborhood that they're very happy with. And there's no big dance clubs and in New York. And they probably got accustomed to that because they really couldn't go far. Sure. For, and for and also, while. look, I'm, I've never, I, I, you know, never was at the plate of Tinder or whatever, because that all happened after I was a married guy with kid with a kid. But, you know, I think that if you're meeting people that way, you're more likely to say, hey, let's meet at the corner right. bar and have a drink or two than you are to say, well, let's go. You never met them. You're like, Let's go 45 minutes into Manhattan. <laughs> right. Have a big and night out. there. Right, right. <laughs> so I think all that has changed New York a bit. But look, people are still going out. We're still super busy. So thank goodness. It's just, I think, a little bit different. Technology affects things in so many it does. ways. That was a it very does. valid point. Look, look, Peter Gation, who we worked for for a minute in the early 90s before we went to Moscow, he at that time had four clubs that all had about 3,500 to 4,000 person capacity. The Tunnel, USA, Palladium, and and Limelight at once. And he was filling them. So he had 15,000, 16,000 people in his venues on an average Friday night. And they were huge. Huge. And it's just, it's almost impossible. Fun. Yeah, but it's impossible (laughs) to comprehend that any one operator could even fill one venue of that size anymore, let alone four on the night. It was bonkers what he had going on. Well, it was insane. I just, I, I, I guess I think that the younger, you know, 20s, they're just, they're traveling more and maybe not staying That's another, home. that's another part of my theory, but I have, to, I really should write it up or try and prove it. But I also feel like a lot of New Yorkers, they sort of get their, their nightlife Jones going when they're, when they're at a festival, like Co- whether it's Coachella or South by Southwest or Art Basel, you could name five, five more very easily. And I feel like a lot of people that used to like really care about going out in New York, when they're in New York, they're actually getting up to go to Soul Cycle or yoga at 7 a.m. You are so right. And when I'm it, one of these people. And it's when they're on the road <laughs> that they're letting, you know, letting it all hang out. They go, maybe they have to do two days of work. Maybe they're in PR. 24-7. And they, right. They go, but they go to Art Basel for, for two days of doing their, whatever their presentation is for their company. And then they have three days to just go nuts. And, and stretch it out. Right. Yeah. And then they come back to New York. They're like, oh, man, I need to take a break. I'm not drinking for three weeks. I'm not, you know. But we always need to eat dinner. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness. And a good business lunch. Yeah. Yeah. And like Lamb's business lunch is fully back. Like we were really nervous about it. But at least Tuesday through, even Monday's fine. But Tuesday through Thursday, it's completely rocking. Where's everybody coming from? 
since the office hey, well they're in there most people are back in the office two to three days a week the the senior execs because they're right. trying to set a an example Tone. and and that's a senior exec place lambs is not for you know the the person who doesn't have a credit card from their corporation or something right, so right you know we have people who are super high up at simon and schuster or paramount or bank of america or a lot of Broadway producers, lots of Broadway producers come in there to sort of, whether they're courting a star or courting an investor, whatever it may be, they're in there having lunch. Um, I didn't know him then. Now I'm quite friendly with him, but the producer Hamilton, apparently he and Lin-Manuel Miranda had breakfast at Lamb's the day that the seats went on sale for Hamilton. I've never been there for breakfast. I've never been in our own place for breakfast, but, <laughs> but apparently they came in for breakfast and sat there looking on their phones at the ticket sales while they had breakfast and lunch. So we see a lot of that. We, we Unfortunately, HBO moved to Hudson Yards. Mm-hmm. And really, our, really the big shame was when Condé Nast, the, for the first five years, Condé Nast, that was their headquarters for lunch. Of course. Anna Winter was there three days a week, uh, as were many of the other editors who were awesome. Got to know all of them. But then they moved down to the World Financial Center. And yeah. um, I've offered them all Metro cards, but they all, <laughs> they all turned me down. I know, I know. And speaking to how fantastic you are in, you know, hospitality, it was when I officially met you, I was just having lunch at the Lambs Club. I don't know if you remember. And you approached me and you were like, you're you, Mindy. You've been at my establishments. And I'm like, no way. You own all of these things. And I've had so many moments at, you know, the chat wall and Lambs Club and lunches, breakfasts and so forth. It was my spot. But I mean, like, do you know how it made me feel? (laughs) that I've been supporting your establishments and the owner knew who, like, thanks. I, thanks for the great food. Everything's delicious. Well, it's funny because, you know, I guess I am a bit of a type A personality, and but I've partnered over the years with people who are also such. And so in a lot of times, it was just strategically smarter to let them lead, you know, whereas I was always leading, you know, through high school and college and all that shit. But Sometimes, like Will was my first partner, who we, we're still very close friends. He le- he decided to have a third life change and moved to Massachusetts about eight years ago to work with his wife. They launched a completely different business, but you know he was just he was that whatever you know you, whatever you call a big man on campus in college. He was BMOC of Manhattan. Okay. So like <laughs> like there was no reason for me to try and be like, hey, it's mine too. Right, like I right. was cool. Like I, you, I knew if I, if you Everybody knew, needs a Pippin. Yeah. If you knew, you knew that I was also a partner. And if you didn't know, I didn't really care. I was good with it. You know, yeah. we were, and so I've kind of, same thing when we opened Lotus, we, we, what Will and I had, I used to call residual juice. We, we knew a ton of people, but we weren't in that moment known for having the place of the moment. Union Bar was extremely, it was almost like Jimmy. It had like the same crowd of 27-year-olds that sort of refurbished itself every two years. Right. You know, they had left the college, you know, the post-college, you know, frat bar, and they weren't yet ready for, you know, whatever it may have been, Nels or whatever it may have been at the time, but they were very happy in a somewhat sophisticated, more upscale venue. So we came off a union bar to do Lotus. And like I said, we knew a lot of people, but a lot of them had slowed down in their like going out. Activity. And, but Mark Baker and Jeffrey Jaw at the time were basically running New York because they were running Life, which was a big club at that moment. And we just approached them and said, look, we found this amazing space. We're funded, but we think you'd be great partners. Don't you want to be partners rather than just promoting other people's venues? Right. And it it worked out. And same thing with, you know, with Monica at the Double Seven. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful woman, very smart. I'm like, yeah, we could take all the credit or we could put this gorgeous, smart woman in front of this audience and call her Create the boss. An opportunity yeah. And that's just smart it, business. It, and it's also, it, it, in a lot of ways, it ta- if people come in there and they're not looking for you necessarily, it takes the pressure off oh, you. Yeah. They're happy to see you, but they're, they're really, where's Monica? Right. The, kind of the thing. buck stops over there. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's like, I think the greatest person at our nightlife job, if you will, that I've ever really seen was a- is Amy Sacco. I mean, come on. Of course. You know, and, but the only problem for Amy was, I think that she's so friggin' good at it and so funny and so personable and so, you know, that you didn't have the same experience if you went to Bungalow 8 and she wasn't there that night. You right. Know? And so it's, it's both a, you know, it's almost like a, it's a huge victory, but it can also be somewhat of a trap because right. people are like, oh no, Amy's not here. Uh-uh. Right. You know, and I, I, I know that feeling. Yeah. And yeah. I prefer to be in the position where you're like, we have a woman uh, named Amanda running Temple Bar, who's amazing, smart, funny, great looking, you know, just the whole package. And I'm really happy that people go there and say, well, I don't really care if you're here. I'm going to say right. hi to Amanda. Okay. All good. I'm going to go and watch the game. Right. You know, but I love being in our venues and I love meeting new people, but I love having, you know, whether it's a business partner or like Kyle at America Bars. We love Kyle Hotchkiss. Yes. And he's, (laughs) you know, he's 25 years younger than me or something like that. So he has a whole different audience. And thankfully, you know, my friends quite like meeting him and, and a deal who's another young partner there. And I've gotten to know through them a lot of their younger friends. So it's, it's sort of works well together. That's a great partnership as well. And, and I you. love all of the restaurants that you partner in there. So you obviously have an eye for a great business deal. What are some key factors you take into consideration when deciding to move forward with a deal? Everyone's, every deal's different. So there's no, for me, there's no like rock solid formula. We've been lucky in the last few years that we've been offered a bunch of management agreements and I, I kind of prefer them. Um, to you, what? To just renting a space and, okay. and uh, you know, you take much more of the risk when you rent a space. And of course, if you, if you hit home run, you get much more of the reward. Um, the risk reward ratio is different in a management agreement. You do very well. You do fine if you're doing well for them, but you don't have that risk of being on the hook for a huge lease or having to have raised $3 million or whatever to outfit the place. For example, we could never have like we pay an occupancy cost, but we could never have raised the money to have Thierry Despont design the Lambs Club. Right. He's one of the most ex- expensive and well-deservedly designers so. in the world. Yeah, I mean, he redoes, you know, classic hotels in London and Paris, the whole building. So no restaurateur could ever just walk into Thierry and be like, hey, we want you to do our, you know, ADC restaurant. You, you know, he'd be like, well, okay, never happened. That you're renting the space. Right? Yeah, like you, you, could, you, there, you could never afford him. So, right. but when he redid, when he did the whole chop wall, and did such a gorgeous job on the hotel. Mr. Chot- yeah, Mr. Chotwall insisted that we use him for the restaurant and we were able to work it out with him so that financially it didn't kill us. Because as I said, you could never just choose a guy like that. He's one of the most famous interior designers in the world and, and he deserves it. He just did Casa Cipriani where he crushed it as well. But, you know, we, we're, we're tenants at Temple Bar. We believed in Temple Bar. It, you know, we used to go there. It was open from, I think, mid 80s till 2017 when the owner passed away of just of old age nothing nothing pandemic related or anything and we basically sort of implored the the estate to let us reopen it and sort of honor what temple bar had always been and that worked out 
you know, and we had confidence in that space and it's, you know, it's doing very well. So it's really different. Sometimes people come to say, Hey, we're going to build out the whole thing for you. And then sometimes you just, you, you feel good enough about your team that you're willing to raise the money and, and pay the rent, you know, it. It varies. Jewels, jewels. So what has been one of your greatest challenges in building your portfolio of businesses? I would say that it's, I would really say that it's that we've been impacted by circumstances we could not control, you know, you know, it's, it's, you just can't control, you know, Lotus was a rocket ship for 13 months, like just insane. And we were so busy in August, which is crazy of 2001, that we were almost concerned about what was going to happen post Labor Day. We were like, we're almost overwhelmed now. And then of course, 9-11 happened and it really almost put us out of business because even though people still had to go eat, they didn't need to go out. They didn't feel good about going out. I didn't feel good about going out. You know, we all, almost everyone knew someone who was lost yeah. in that. So for, I'd say six to eight months, people just didn't have it in their soul really to go it's dancing different. and dance on a table and drink a bottle of champagne. So that yeah. almost, you know, and it, as I said, we had a fully uh, contracted, about to be signed deal for the Venetia to build this a Lotus in Las Vegas. We would have been first in the game there, you know, yeah. before Tau Group and all this other stuff. And it evaporated overnight because Vegas shut down, all the flights shut down. Um, so then you get back up and running and you're doing great. And then 2008 comes and knocks the shit out of everything again. And we had, uh, we at the time had a Mexican restaurant um, uh, on the corner of Gansevoort and Washington called Los Dados that had been there for about a year. And we were paying stupid rent, but it was based on the fact that the standard was about to open the High Line was about to open and the standard was open, but the High Line was about to open and the Whitney was about to open. Right. Both like hundred feet from us. And um, the recession, I think took four years, knocked them back four years. And we went to the landlord and we said, look, we can't pay you this kind of rent when these things have stopped. Yeah. And unfortunately for us, he's like, no, I don't care. So what ended up happening was he had, I think he's had four or five different tenants since then because no one could make it until right. those things and now there's a Pecora Bianca there, which is kind of perfect. Yeah. You know, but like that was completely out of our control. No one knew that the Merrill Lynch was going to crash and the, everything was going to stop. And then obviously the worst thing, you know, this last couple of years with the pandemic, we had, we opened America Bar in February of 2020 and within three weeks we had it closed. That's my neighborhood. I yeah. pass it every day. So, and I was worried. <laughs> well, we were lucky because we have so much outdoor seating that it actually was an advantage for us. The nice thing, the interesting thing about the village is that obviously, as you know, since you live down there, people make good money down there, but a lot of our neighbors are, you know, under 35. They, they make fine amount of money, but they don't have enough money to have a second and third home. Right. So they were in the city. They had income to spend, but they're like, where do we spend it? So whereas in some neighborhoods where everyone has a home in the Hamptons or a home in Florida or whatever, they just left. Right. So we were lucky that we had this younger audience that wanted to go out, wanted to see their friends, but were kind of stuck in their area. And so I think that's part of the reason. And I also think the menu is just so well designed. And, but I think that that's part of why American Bar worked. But in other ways, it's sort of, look, we delayed the opening of Sona because of the pandemic. We were able to renegotiate our lease so that we were able to stay alive. We, re we pushed back the opening of Temple Bar. And nothing would have been worse than to have those two venues open for a month or two 
because they're very much indoor venues. Yeah. So those two. Nothing you can do about them. And, and if those two had been, you know, if we had already been open so, and then hit, got hit by the pandemic, I don't know what we would have done. Right. Right. And that's the challenge for many venues that are pretty much just indoor. American Bar, I think that it thrived because you had this beautiful outdoor situation. And that's what really helped the mm. village and Soho and all of these neighborhoods because that's all we had. If you were, if you remained in the city, if you were in the city, it was energized. Sure. Friday, super brunch, super, you know, you know super high no traffic, thing. super There's high traffic. Nothing to do at night, street. no theater. No, and you had to be, you, you couldn't be in a restaurant after 10. So, you know, we really benefited from that, you know, yeah. from just the massive sort of demand at that time of night. Yeah. Take a minute. So, David, what has been one of your most exciting adventures and moments along this journey? <laughs> That's a, Hard question to answer for you, I'm sure. Well, there was certainly the excitement of opening Rex and having such a life-changing moment. Um, you know, six months earlier, or a year earlier, I was reading thousand-page leases and you know trying to stay awake. As and a now, yeah. And now we had this, you know, wildly hot nightclub. But I think the most fun and the most danger were the same thing. We we opened the first as consultants, but we really ended up running it the first Western style supper club in Moscow after the wall came down. Oh, wow. So we were asked to go to Moscow in 92 to see the space. We kind of thought it was like a ridiculous joke, but might as well go have a look. Take um, the meeting. Take the meeting. And we went to Moscow and this group, this bank had actually secured the best location in all of Russia. Like the equivalent of, well, I was going to say 5th and 57th, but more likely the equivalent of, you know, Prince and, and well, where the Mercer is or something. Right. Like the perfect night, the downtown night, you know, nighttime destination. It was across the street from the Kremlin, across the street from St. Basil's. So our view was of that church dome. And yeah, about a year later, we opened basically the Studio 54 of Russia. They had never had anything like that. Wow. It was actually designed by the people who designed Studio 54. Amazing. And it all came about because they were reading about Rex and they wanted to meet us. They were reading about it in page six and they were like, who are these guys? Right. And someone set up a meeting. I can't remember who. We went to the meeting very skeptically. We're like, yeah, Whatever. we're going to Russia. And the next thing you know, we we're working full, you know, full speed ahead on a project in Moscow. And it was super exciting, but also not without its dangers. Club was bombed. Uh, what? It was bombed on a Sunday morning as sort of a warning from another rival business operator oh my goodness business operator luckily no one was in the place which i think was just a warning shot but i remember having to call my sister who was due to come to moscow to visit and you know see what was going on and I, obviously i called her like five minutes later said you can't come and tell me if this shows up on cnn because there were news cameras everywhere oh my goodness and i was so worried that my mom was gonna see it and like freak out right we were there for the last coup um when some senators seized their own Senate building in, I think it was October of 93. And uh, the guys we were working for came to us. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was was visiting. Worst day of her life, because it was the day she arrived. Uh, and uh, we, without knowing it, we saw the last changing of the garden history of Lenin's tomb, because the war broke out a half hour later. And when we got back to the hotel and they told us there was a war going on, we're like, what war? We were just in Red Square five minutes ago. We're like, it's at the radio station. They've seized all the communications. They're marching on the Kremlin. Yeltsin's helicopter 
proceeds to like immediately like lift off and fly off with that with two like attack helicopters near it. Oh my goodness! And we woke up um, the next. Well, first of all, they gave us wine, pasta, water, and a gun, and locked us in our rooms and said, "Don't answer your door for anyone except us when we come get you tomorrow morning." And when we woke up, there were there were snipers and and attack helicopters all on our roof because they were going to use our hotel as the staging ground if they had to take back the Kremlin from the from the rioters. It was out of a movie. The, yeah. I'm gonna say that's straight out of it a movie. It was out of a movie. So you guys got out of it. We did. Uh they made me actually interestingly they Good. they took us to another location because they were concerned we had gotten so much press as being, you know, the Americans are here and it was a very anti American moment pro communist moment, the last sort of gasp of communism. So they took us out of town to some like tiny town in a little motel. And then two days later that we were finally able to get flights, but they made me stay, which was, they weren't so, so smart about some things, but they were brilliant about other things. And this is where I would never have thought of this. I said, why do you want me to stay? I'll go home to New York. And as soon as you get word that the curfew is lifting, because there was a 9 a.m., 9 p.m. curfew imposed, I said, I'll just come back the next day. And they're like, nope. We want you here, so we want to be able to open the moment the curfew lifts because people are going to be going insane, locked in their houses for three or four weeks. And so sure enough, they got word that two days later, the curfew was going to you know, end. It was about a month for me. And we reopened the night that it was lifted, and the place was, you know, it was like New Year's Eve because people had been locked in their homes for three or four weeks. Wow. So yeah, but I was bored out of my mind because, you know, there was nothing to really do. In Russia at that time. So I right. did a lot of running, a lot of jump rope, watched a lot of soccer because I couldn't understand the TV and read a lot of books. I was literally like trapped in my um, Okay, the movie's coming because this is... <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. So how long did that venue stay open? Uh, it stayed open for many years, but we ran it. Our contract was two years. Towards the end of it, they brought in the guy that was supposed to replace us, the Russian expert that was supposed to replace us. And I told... I, by that time, we we're very close to the actual owners, and I and I, he called me in his office one day, said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Honestly, terrible decision, worst guy I've ever seen." Oh, he has a great reputation. He worked in the Black Sea, worked in Sochi. He, you know, all these resort areas. I'm like, look, he's a fool, and you're going to call us back in six months. You should leave us here for a month and keep searching. Yeah. And he's like, "No, we've already decided that." I said, "Okay, dollar bet." <laughs> no joke, dollar bet that you're going to call me within the next six months. And I swear to God, five months and two weeks later, we were in back in Moscow. But they had, this idiot had killed the Vought. It was such a high-end Vought. And he sort of lowered the standard so much and the thought that he was going to make more money yeah. that he just killed the reputation of the club. And a new club, of course, had come along and sort of stolen the fire. Because they and, saw that window of opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, at that time, all these young oligarchs in training basically it was a great thing for them because they had a home ba home court advantage. You know, like our place, Manhattan Express, was almost like Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. Didn't matter what side of the battle you were on or what you did. Everyone kind of met there. And so this other club seized the moment. And we said, look, if we have a party, everyone will come out one night to see us and welcome us back. But that'll be it. They'll still go to that. Said, you need to drop a little bit of money to rename it because the name is now tarnished. And redecorate so that people feel like, oh, okay, they really went the extra mile and they weren't willing to do it. So it just sort of devolved over the next five or six years. But 
the first two years were just remarkable. Like yeah. the, you know, the amount of money that Russians had to spend and the sort of culture of outspending your neighbor that you see, like if you go to, I don't know, a club in Saint Tropez or something like that, it was very much existent in Moscow in 1993. No one wanted to be seen as having less money than the next guy. So that was the arrow. <laughs> it was good for business for us, you know. But like I said, there were definitely, you know, once or once every month or two, something happened that you were like, oh my God, how am I in the middle of this shit? Right, right. You know, but as a poli sci major in college, it was actually my last paper was about the Cold War. So it was very exciting for you, for me to be there in the middle of really watching it happen or unravel, you know, if you want. I mean, talking to you here, it's so evident how you've been successful at all of this because. It's so innate to you, but I am hearing all of these jewels and nuanced strategic things. And, you know, when you advise someone on their business and you have your fingers on the pulse mm -hmm. of what needs to be done and they don't listen, you you can tell when thing which direction. Yeah, look, I would have been, been I was been super happy if they had found we yeah. didn't want to stay like we would have been. But we also were so emotionally invested. It was just a financial thing. It was just an emotional investment. You spent two and a half years of your life working on something. It's not like you can just turn it off, you know, like I don't care. So I, I was more for protecting them that we wanted them to pick someone else. It wasn't for our benefit. Right. And and I get that about you. Yeah, we just, I'm integrity, like, I'm really like, help I, said to, I said, Yuri, this guy's going to kill your business. No, no, no. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I hated to be, I really did. I hated to be right. right. But in that case, I was right. So what's one piece of advice that you can share based on your experience with someone looking to enter this space or needing to energize their existing business in hospitality well, restaurants? If they were looking to enter it, I would suggest that they not make the mistake we did, which was never working ourselves in the business before we opened a place. Like Will had been a waiter during college and I had a lot of friends in the business and got a lot of advice, but there's no substitute for really running a place for six months or even assisted running a place for six months. And we we skipped that step. And it was a it was a big mistake for us because we never really had the financial footing and 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 sort of awareness that we should have had at the launch of Rex. And we, we were always chasing our tail. It took about four months for it to take off till people really understood what was going on there. And that four months really we never escaped that shadow of, you know, how much money we owed and all that stuff. So it would have been we were bright enough that if we had spent some time with somebody, we would have picked up on what we, but we definitely just charged in like, we're smart. We know what we're doing. We could do this. And it's not that simple. So you're saying learn from something. Yeah. It's a, it's a, such a, it's such a margin business. You know, it's, it's, you, you know, you really have to watch everything. You have to, every cost you have to think about because it's just so, it's so, such a tight business. Right. And we weren't as aware as we should have been. So anyone who's thinking about going into it for the first time, that that would be my suggestion. If someone's if someone's not doing well right now with an existing business, it's a, that's a much harder, that's a much bigger lift because, you know, it's so hard to find new capital if you're not making money. So right. like, if you wanted to go out and say, look, let's let's renovate, let's rebrand, let's whatever, it's, you really have to find someone who really believes in you, and that's not easy, especially if it's not doing well. Like, who's going to pour right. good money after bad? So that's a tougher, that's a tougher question. I would probably suggest that they bring in, you know, someone else to work with them who has chops, Good you know, or better chops, you know, yeah. or, and, and take a little bit of a backseat, reduce their percentage willingly. Yeah. I always say to people, like, I'd rather own less of a great project than, 
than more of a shitty project. That is my mantra. You know, there's no reason for some me. To, something is better than some of nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the point of having, you know, 50 or 60% of something that just sucks when I could have 25% of something that's going to last 10 years and Bingo. I don't have to do everything and everyone thinks it's great and it leads to more projects, yeah. you know, because people think, oh, well, that's a, I mean, that's exactly what happened with Skylark. I mean, if Jimmy hadn't been doing so well, I would never have gotten that call. And success uh, begets success. So I'm willing, I'm always willing to like partner with people that I think are strategically smart and that I like so that it's not all about, because I don't know everything, you know, and there's no way I could. And so you, you really want, and I don't know all the new, you know, young hotshots moving to town. No way I could. So it's great to have partners that can help you in that process. Amazing. Well, that leads me to my next question. When do you know it's the right time to scale? Um, I don't know that you do. I mean, for we thought we were killing it in 2005 when Lotus was, you know, king of the city, if you will. And we did the double seven and we did Los Dados and both made a ton of sense, except our rent at, at double seven was $60 a square feet, a square foot. Apple signed at that when they did the first Apple downtown at 285 a square foot. And then Hugo Boss to be next to Apple signed at 525 a square foot. So all of a sudden our rent was nine times under market and a, our building went wildly, got wildly valuable and the landlord sold it um, out from under us, even though all our investors were real estate guys and said, this right. will never get sold. This is a shitty building and you know, no one cares. Right. So, you know, we thought we were being so smart. Same thing, we thought we were being so smart about opening Los Dados. We sort of felt like, well, we control this neighborhood. You know, we have Lotus and Double Seven and I'm the head of the Meatpacking District Initiative, which is now a bid. But at the time it was just sort of like an unofficial chamber of commerce. I'm like, yeah, we'll crush it if we have it. And at first we did, but then the world fell apart. So I think scaling is obviously what you want to do, but you just have to be aware that, that the world can throw, throw snowballs at you that you're just not expecting. Right. You know, you can make your own mistake too and miscalculate a neighborhood or overestimate how, how, you know, you, we haven't really done much of this, but I've definitely seen brands that are super successful in New York and they've gone to other markets and no one cares. Right. Uh, we, it happened to us was actually, I think part of it was the space sucked, but we, Jimmy was very successful or is still very successful. And at that time, that hotel group opened a James in Chicago and they wanted to make Jimmy at, instead of a rooftop, they wanted to make it a little speakeasy. And we thought, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. And it was a very sexy little room and only holds up fifth, like 50 people. But the, the thing you had to sneak through to get to Jimmy was a bacon and meat shop. And I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And we had no control over that. Yeah. I'm like, Make it like a smoothie bar so that, right. and we can share the juices and we can share the fruit and all that stuff. Make it so people actually, but you're going to do a, a bacon based meat bar and people are going to walk through that to get to a hidden bar. It was the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Plus, Chicago, as do many cities, they very justifiably have an opinion that they, they don't really need New Yorkers help. They have great mixologists, they have great chefs, beautiful restaurants. And so for a little while, we were like the new kid on the block. And then people were like, well, this isn't really necessarily better than our own homegrown place. And so that wasn't, you know, again, it was a management agreement. It didn't really, but it, there, you know, there's tremendous value in your time. And so in a lot of ways, we wasted a lot of time. It's felt cool at the time, right? Someone's flying to Chicago and we're eating in all these cool restaurants and we're meeting all these new people. Then I was like, why did we just do that? Right. Like that was a huge I've been there. time suck. So. <laughs> I, you know, I think that that's, 
one of the lessons for me is like, th think about what's not realistic. You know, something may look really great and smart for you to do, but it actually isn't. Like, you know, you can't just necessarily translate your popularity. Like, look, I think American Bar would work really well in Miami, in LA, in maybe Dallas or, or, or maybe even London. But I think if we went to Colorado, you know, to Denver, they'd be like, who cares? Like, yeah. it's just, yeah, that's a good salad. It's a pretty good burger. Who cares? You know, it's, there's, it's vibe. I think we need to be where people who are already our audience also go. Jewel. And they go to, they go to LA a lot. They go to Vegas. They go to Miami and they go to London and Paris. They don't necessarily go to, you know, the middle of the country, right. you know, and, you know, so I, 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 if someone came to us and said, we're going to build you a, an American bar in Omaha, I'd be like, eh. or Pittsburgh, like it's a, they're tertiary cities. They're a great idea to go do something good there, but don't think that your vibe from New York is going to follow you to a city like that. Cause it's right. not just because the real estate works for you. Yeah. And you could do a great project and it maybe just stands on its own as a great project, but it's different when you're a superstar. Like I think Bobby Flake or could go almost anywhere and yeah. plant a flag. And Bobby's like the greatest guy, brand. but he's, and he's the greatest guy, you know? So I wish him success, whatever he does all the time. But like, he's such a big entity with the food channel and all that stuff. Yeah. And he's, he's such a good dude. Whatever you see on TV, that's who he is. He's that good a dude. It's like, well, he's not in this business, but like people, you know, I'm, I'm friendly with Michael Strahan and people say, what's he really like? And I'm like, He's nicer than that. Like, they, they can't believe it, but he what really, he is nicer than he is on TV, cooler, more fun. I was lucky I met him when he was, you know, young player with the Giants, and we developed a, a na very natural, organic friendship. He's known my son since my son was born. They have their own rapport going back. It's now over 22 years. Yeah. Like, I'll walk up the block sometimes. He's got my son in a headlock, you know? <laughs> it's just so cute. So, like, you know, for us to just go take one of our brands into some city that wouldn't care, I, I, that's what I try to avoid, honestly. But I'd love to do Temple Bar LA or American Bar South Beach. I think it would I work. I think those work. I think it would. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm lucky because my, my, one of my college housemates, I live with five guys off campus, is the mayor of South Beach. So, yeah, it would just certainly... We love Mayor Suarez. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, that's Miami. Ah. He, Danny, is the, Danny Gelber is the mayor Danny of Gelber. just the beach. And so where he grew up and his father was the mayor. Nice. Yeah. So I'd love to have an excuse to be down there working, hanging out with him a little bit more. That's my other home away from home. I love Miami. I like it down there too, except in June through September. Well, not trying to. Not... Never there. What's the point? <laughs> right. So when do you know it's time to move on? In what sense? And not doing the business anymore? No, I mean, yeah. When is it time to like. Well, I don't you know. know. I mean, look, I, I probably thought that. Look, it's a little bit different in New York than it is in other Not cities. Not for you, giving advice for somebody else. Oh, there, well, know? I don't know. I mean, it's hard. Like, look, New York is different than other cities because very few of us in New York actually own the real estate where your business is in. You're usually at the base of some big building and you're just paying rent. I think in other cities, in other states, oftentimes the restaurateur owns the building. So he has a real asset to sell. And in states like New Jersey, and I don't know where else, but I know it's the fact for New Jersey. Each town has a strict limit on how many liquor licenses they can have. And so then you really have huge value. If you're in some small town and you're one of only the four places that can get a liquor license, you have not only the building to sell, but you have tremendous value in your liquor license. That doesn't exist in New York, um, in Manhattan. So I guess if you, you know, if you have a great restaurant that's in Syracuse or a great restaurant that's in Long Island, 
and you own the building, yeah, at some point you can say, okay, cool, I'm going to cash out for a couple million bucks and, you know, move to Florida. But that doesn't really work for us. And we were in a really great position in 2019, or I was in a really great position in 2019 because we had a bunch of things firing on all cylinders and we had, or I had at least two to three other things that were, you know, definitely going to happen, not like some conversation, but for sure going to happen. And both of the best of, uh, two of the best of the three scuttled because of the pandemic, yeah. you know, literally just scrapped. And Happens. so, and so, you know, I've had to think myself about like, well, I got to keep working because those two, I mean, I was going to have to work on those as well, but I felt like what I really did in my head think if those two work, I'll be good. Like I won't have to be killing myself. And, you know, and so when those went away, I was like, well, I got to think about more stuff to do because as I, as I've explained, you know, I, I, I am partners with two or three people in each of these deals. So even when they do very well, you know, you can't, it's not like I'm pocketing all the profits, right. you know, we're sharing, I'm sharing it amongst a group, um, which gives stability and sanity, but detracts from your, you know, your, your ability to just bank on one venue. So we'll see for me, not yet. And a little too much energy. So what inspires you? Look, I really like it. I mean, I really enjoy the interaction with people. You know, I really enjoy the building process of it. Not, not the construction, I mean, but the thinking it through what it should be, what it should, that, that conceptualization or, I mean, people sometimes say to me, well, what do you do? You don't cook, you don't, you know, and I kind of, the best thing I can say is I feel like I'm kind of an executive producer in a way. Like I've been good over the years about pulling together the, a good designer, a good operations team, a good front of house person the right real estate. You know, we've been in good areas, just as those areas. When we were Park Avenue South, it was just about to blow up. You know, there was a restaurant there called Park Avalon and another great place called The Coffee Shop, which was open for 30 years. Amazing. And we had the cocktail bar in between those places. So, sorry. And then when we went to the meatpacking district, people thought we were nuts, but I'm like, it's the only, it's true to this day, it's the only part of Manhattan that is still zoned for manufacturing which means they can't keep you from getting a cabaret license or a dance license. So we knew that we would be grandfathered in there. And we also knew Keith McNally was going there. And I'm like, if Keith McNally is there, and there was a beautiful clothing store there called Jeffrey, I don't know if you remember it, but- Of course. And I was like, if this guy can move his super high-end clothing store after being at Barney's or wherever, I believe he's at Barney's, and do it on 10th and 18th, give me a break. There must be something here that we're not thinking about. And, you know, it was- so we were in that neighborhood at the exact right moment. And actually, I'm sorry that I, or one regret I definitely have is that I have a friend who's been very successful in real estate. And he's, he came to Lotus one night. And he said, walk me around the neighborhood. We walked around the neighborhood. He said, we should buy something here. And I told him the truth as far as I knew it at the time, which is none of those guys were willing to sell at that time. They all knew that it was going like this and yep. they weren't willing, you know, but I think we should have been more aggressive about maybe making a stupid offer to somebody. Right. But no one could have predicted as I said, the Apple Apple store changed everything. When Paul Pariser and Taconic, who they also did the Google building, but when they recreated that Apple building, the whole neighborhood changed. And now I would say changed for the worse. It's must a lot of empty stores because landlords followed suit, recreated their retail space. Look at Milk Studios, it's empty. Like that whole building is empty. I don't know if it's ever been occupied, whereas it used to be a thriving, you know, hub of activity and a gas station, which everyone needed. And yeah. it was mobbed. Now it's like a beautiful glass store that's never had a thing in it, as far as I know. Empty. Empty. So it's strange how I find that landlords, 
don't think communally enough. They only think about their own interests. That's and, very valid. And had they thought communally, they would have said, if we're going to preserve the nature of this yeah. area, right, we are going to sacrifice. We're each going to say, but you could never get these guys to do it because they're, but we're each going to keep one or two stores below market so that there's a cool gallery or there's a cool one-off clothing store. And then the rest of it can be Dior and Chanel and whatever, but they never do that. And so they, they price all the small, cool up-and-comers out of the neighborhood and the neighborhood becomes like any other shopping mall. You know, Soho still has those jewels on the side streets. I can't even name half of them. Right. I mean, Raoul's is, is, you know, one of my favorite restaurants ever, right? Institution. But this, you know, when you walk, when I walk to work sometimes, when I walk from like Temple Bar to Jimmy, I'll pa pass some restaurant that I've never really even heard of on, on you know, on Thompson Street or something. And it's packed. It's small, packed. but it's packed and it's got a community and people love being there. And they killed that in the meatpack district. They, we had it 2000 to 2005, really cool little one-off clothing stores, galleries. They're all gone. Yeah. So that's, that's a shame, I think, that landlords don't think a little bit more about the environment. What's made them win, then they kill it. I think it could happening in the Miami Design District a little bit, too. Could be, yeah. yeah. I mean, the last time I was there, I was sort of stunned at, you know, I saw, you know, once you start seeing Tom Ford, Gucci, Chanel, I mean, it's great that they really have the, that kind of audience, but you're also, that means that you're not going to see the great designer who was able to scrap together the money and, and making the most cutting edge clothing you've ever right. seen, but they can't pay the same rent as, as Chanel. So I you, think real estate developers really need to carve out some sort of- The smart of, ones do. Yeah, because I've run into to shops and they said, oh, I used to be here. I moved right. a, a block over and now they're pushing me out because- right you know, can't afford the rent. And Look, it's a you, shame. If you follow at least my time in New York, and I'm sure I missed other generations of the same thing, but when I moved here to go to law school, the reason Soho was so cool was because all the galleries and then all the restaurants followed all those galleries and yeah. then everyone wanted to live there. And that fucked it up because once you have all these people buying expensive apartments, then they don't want any noise. And so then all the galleries moved to the meatpacking district and that then then you start seeing restaurants pop up around them and then clothing stores pop up around them. I mean, Florent was always there and he was amazing. But then they price out all the galleries. So now they're all, as you know, in far west Chelsea and they're great. They're gorgeous. But who knows how long they'll have a life there. If, you know, They may now have a longer life because retail is where it is. So maybe there isn't, you know, Dior or someone like that. Not to say anything bad about these major brands, right, right. but... They may not be that interested in going cutting edge over there if if retail stays where it is. Whereas yeah, culture and community are so important for these. And you know what's interesting though, if you go it, like Comme des Garcons, like has that amazing store I think on Twenty Second Street. Yeah. But they they were so smart because they left the front of the building looking the facade gra very all graffiti, very New York. You you have to walk into a tunnel basically to get there to their glass doors, and so. It feels very much of the neighborhood. It's not like, oh, let's transform the neighborhood. They're like, no, let's honor the neighborhood and build something respectful and that, you know, is a little bit undercover. When I take people there, they're blown away. They have no idea. I love that store so much. It's such much. a great it's store. It's such an experience. Yeah. They do such a great job. They do. So who's David Rabin off duty? Uh, uh, it's so funny you say that because when I used to go work out at any of the equinoxes down near Lotus, I would regret it so much, whether it was the West, the West Village one or the Chelsea, they have one on 10th and 18th, 
or Soho because I'd be like, oh my God, this is just like being at work. So <laughs> I can imagine. So, but I live on the Upper West Side. So I just started, just, I just gave up and just kept going to my gym. And what was so nice was no one was asking me about the guest list. No one was asking me like, <laughs> what's cool tonight? Where should I be going on Sunday night? I'd, no one to me is anything other than my son's dad. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, I think he's Tyler's dad, which was awesome. And it's not like, look, it's nothing like being a global celebrity, but in the little world of the meatpacking district, which is where I was for nine years, basically, I kind of knew everybody. And it was yeah. a nightmare to try and just go out in that neighborhood because everyone wanted to always talk about what's cool today. What? And I'm like, yeah, no, you can you can't walk down the street and pass these. Not people, not like. in that neighborhood, but on the Upper West Side, <laughs> I'm just a you know Upper West Side Jewish dad with in, in, in his Nikes walking to the gym, so it's all good. Even um, your wife figured it out. How that yeah, happened. well, no, she figured it out. She insisted that we stay up there. But what I in my off time, I try to read as much as I can, and I try and play tennis as often as I can. Nice. I mean, those two things are just staying aware of what's going on in the world and keeping myself in some sort of shape is are two of the you know priorities, and then the rest of it is just you know, although he's 22 now, really good time with my family. And now we have a dog who's just like, I'm the, I'm the exact image of the meme that says the dad that didn't want a dog and is now like on the floor 24 <laughs> seven playing with his puppy. I so, love that. Yeah. Love I'm that. a mess. What kind of dog? He's a Shishan, which is, I guess, half Bichon, half Shih Tzu. Cute. And he's so cute and so much fun. And I'm the designated, I don't know if I have any scars today, but he's very loving with me. But also when he wants to have a fight, I'm the designated uh, <laughs> fighter. You're in the ring. You're which in I, the ring. Which I kind of enjoy. It's all good. I know. So what do you think is next in hospitality? Well, to be honest, the scariest prospect is if the far left, and I definitely consider myself a liberal Democrat, MAGA-hating, you know, mm -hmm. person, the lack of understanding on both fringes is insane. I mean, you can't ever talk logic to someone who's a MAGA person, right? You just give up because they're not listening or an anti-vax person or any of that. So they're just mm -hmm. never going to hear you. On the far left, you know, they want to do all these wage changes that are insane to me. You know, there's a tip credit in New York, which works perfectly. Like minimum wages, whatever it is, and there's a credit. And if you're making $50 an hour in tips equivalent, you don't need to make you know, your minimum wage doesn't have to be, you know, they want to make everyone, they're calling it the fight for 15 or they call it the sub minimum wage, which is brilliant branding of a completely bullshit idea. No one sub minimum wage in New York. If, 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 in other words, if you worked at, at Lamb's Club and you, it was a shitty shift and you didn't make at least $15 an hour, it's our obligation to get you to at least $15 an hour. Right. However, if you worked a great shift and you made $600, we only have to give you $10 an hour. So the five bucks extra doesn't sound like a lot to the layman, but it would cost each restaurant $12,000 more per employee per year. So if you have 30 front of house people, that's $360,000. That's your business. If it's a, you know, a yeah. moderate sized business, you just, why, why stay in business? Because you're just using, you're just all the, that's why some of the, I won't name them, but some of the better restaurateurs or big restaurateurs didn't reopen in New York because they're like, what the fucking point? Right. I'm just going to be paying any money I make. I just give to the employees. So yeah. that's what's, I would say scares me is I think what could happen is the unintended consequence will be more, more automation, a reversion to those Q, QR codes. Because if they really go through with some of these insane, they just narrowly defeated a law last week that on the allegation of a, of, of wage misconduct. In other words, if I'm the owner and you're an employee and you, you allege that I'm withholding your proper salary, 
you can put a lien and I'm just the GM. I'm not even the owner. Or I'm just an investor, a passive investor. You can put a lien on all my assets until your case is resolved. So, so some billionaire investor who, you know, has no idea about the day to day operations can get be leaned on, you know, because you alleged you didn't even prove it yet. So thank God it was narrowly defeated. But the, the situation in the New York State Senate is and a New York State legislature right now is kind of crazy and kind of dangerous. And thank God there's some reasonable people up there. But I've already, I have some friends on the surface of it, they did it for fun, right? They turned their place into mm, a place where you uh, like buy like almost a Metro card and you can go like to a wall of beers and a wall, a wall of pre-made cocktails and you basically put your card in and you fill up your glass. And they did it sort of the fun of an automat. But the truth is the guy told me behind the scenes that we're saving, we're, we've eliminated six servers, you know, because we knew what was coming with the wage changes. And so we didn't want to be in that position. And I'm like, if they keep going with this shit, that's what's going to happen. Even fine dining will have to change their way of doing it. So legislation so important. Well, and lack of understanding and, and, you know, taking these very liberal positions, which sound completely logical to the, to the person who's outside. Like, of course, when you call something the subminimum wage, it sounds horrific. Yeah. But when you say what it really is, that if you work at a summer shift at Jimmy, you work seven hours, you make 600 bucks. They're doing okay. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. That's, that's my biggest concern for our industry, to be honest, that and the, that landlords are still very unrealistic about the rents that businesses can pay. Yeah. I understand that some of it has to do with their mortgage agreements, actually, with their banks and that they're required by the performers that they submitted to their banks that they are supposed to get a certain amount of money per square foot for their retail space. But the world has changed. And what someone could afford in 2018 is not what someone can afford in 2023. And that's why you see if you walk up by me on, on, on Broadway, you know, or there are other neighbors, uh, but Broadway is particularly evident uh, on the Upper West Side. There's so many vacant storefronts, so many, All over the city. which is terrible for the neighborhood. It, you know, it, it's terrible on so many levels, but it's really terrible because it, at later, I mean, what people forget when they're so angry at restaurants and bars or whatever is that at least there's life on their block. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of people came out. I've never seen this happen before. When we were getting ready to reopen Temple Bar, which had been closed for four or five years, several of the neighbors came down and we were like, oh no, at the community board meeting, we're like, oh God, here it comes. And they all stood up and said, we want them to reopen because the block has become unsafe. They no don't, activity. And there was completely no activity, no light, no, no foot traffic. So they were going out to walk their dog at 10 o'clock at night, nervous because it was pitch black, no one to look torn, turn towards. So now there's a clothing store there. We wanted to do, it was NoHo Star. We wanted to do a restaurant there, but the rent was bonkers. Right. But at least because of Temple Bar, well, they leave that clothes, they leave that store open lit at night, even though it's closed. And because of Temple Bar, there's activity now and they feel better. So uh, I just think people need to really think through, or like the people who didn't like what was going on in the meatpacking district, if you ask them what their apartment was worth, let's call it in 1998, and what their apartment is worth today. Because or, of everything. Right, right. It's probably five times. Yeah. And so people just need to take a step back, in my opinion, and say, think, well, what's the long-term prognosis of this decision we're making right now? And I don't think there's enough of that. I think people just get on a bandwagon, fight the power, and then like, well, wait, maybe that's not good for me in the long run. Great, great, valid points, valid points. 
So what's next for you? What can we expect? Any projects? I would have been had I would have had a great answer. That you can tell us about yeah. or is it? We're 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 circling a couple of things with one of my oldest friends who I'd really like to work with. I think one of the projects, as I mentioned, that got scuttled, that really the nail went in the coffin last week, unfortunately. Like they were they were teetering around the edge of doing it or not. And I think they just decided not to do it. So I don't really have anything like imminent, but there's certainly a lot of conversations going on. Well, you've got plenty. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Mindy. Thank you. So phenomenal having you here. Such a great conversation. And where can folks find you? I mean, everyday lunch at the Lambs Club because it's a busy, fun scene. And at night, I kind of like literally run around. Thank God for the subways because otherwise, I'd be spending three hundred dollars a night in Ubers and. And and Don't going out of it. and going out of my mind, you know, in traffic. Yeah. So I really I'm I'm the MTA's worst nightmare. I probably use my Metro card like ten times a day. But luckily, most of our places are, you know, actually Sona and Temple Bar messed me up because otherwise everything else was off the one two three. <laughs> I had like a super easy life. Now I, now I generally a lot of times if it's not like a thousand degrees out, I'll jump on a city bike to get over to Temple Bar As or to you should. yeah because I'm like. Why am I going to? Much easier. Yeah, it's much easier. It's really much easier. And David, where can we follow you? Instagram at David Rabin 8. Amazing. Well, that's it for this segment of What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis. You can find us where all leading audio podcasts are found and on YouTube at What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis, and on Instagram at What's Next with you, Mindy. Bye.